Victory lap. Goodness gracious. Thank you for your worship. It's great to worship with you this morning. And if you have your Bible with you, would you go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 1, please. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a pew rack in front of you. And I want to encourage you, especially if you're new with us, I want to encourage you to open that Bible up. And Genesis chapter 1 is going to be very near the front, of course. And, uh, and if you keep that open the whole time, I think it will be beneficial for uh, your study this morning. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Cody. I'm the senior pastor here and excited to dive into the Word with you this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. I've got a question for you. What's your purpose in life? Who gets to decide? Who defines purpose for you? And what if you get it wrong? People get it wrong all the time. But if you want to discover your purpose in life, if you want to know why you were created, you can open the Bible to page one, and there you'll discover that your purpose in life is given to you by your creator. We were not created purposeless. Your purpose is not some well-hidden mystery that you have to uncover over the course of your life but rather God's purpose for your very existence is clear and it's beautiful. And so I wonder if you're ready for this this morning. You came to church today just expecting a quaint little do more good than bad type of sermon. But what we get here in Genesis chapter 1 today is the very reason we live and breathe, the very purpose of our existence. And so what will you do when you understand what God's purpose is for your life. You've got options. You can reject it. You can say, I just I disagree with that wholesale, and I'm going to go a different direction. You can ignore it. No, there's some, I see value in what the Bible says about my purpose, but I'm, I'm just set on doing my own thing right now. There's another option. Or you can give your life to it. You can say, I want to bring the way I live in line with what God has created me for, with his purpose for me. And Genesis chapter 1 has a very specific word to describe the, per the person who lives in line with God's created purpose for them, and that word is blessed. Do you want to be blessed by God? Do you want to live within his blessing if you do, then Genesis chapter 1 is going to show us how this morning. My goal today is to persuade you to live in the blessing of God's purpose for your life. And that's what we're going to get from our passage. So I want you to follow along with me as I read. We're right in the middle of the six days of creation. We're going to read of days 4, 5, and 6. And so follow along with me, Genesis chapter 1, and I'll start reading in verse 14. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth to rule the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the fourth day. 
Then God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came, and then morning the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl, and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man. In his own image, he created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth, and every tree whose fruit contains seed, this will be food for you. For all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. The creation account opens with a problem. You remember this from day one in Genesis? The earth begins as formless and void. Our fun phrase is tohu wabohu. And so the six days of creation tell us how God solved this problem. Uh, let me show you this chart on the screen that we showed you last week. It was in your sermon study guide this week. It, it's a great visual map for understanding the days of creation and the work that God does to solve the problem of earth being empty uh, and or without form and empty. So on the first three days of creation, we talked about this last week, God solves the formless issue, or earth at this point is uninhabitable. He makes it inhabitable. So on days one, two, and three, God forms the earth. On days four, five, and six, God fills the earth. So he makes it inhabitable, and then he gives it creatures and humans who are able to live on it and within it. And you'll also remember that there is a parallel nature between the days of creation. So what God formed on day one, he filled on day four. What God filled on day two, he filled on day five. What God formed on day three, he filled on day six. The creation account is a beautiful piece of literature. Like if symmetry is your thing, then this is your favorite narrative in Scripture. Everything lines up so well together. On these final three days of creation, we see a lot of similarities from the first three days of creation. God gets 
most of the verbs. We get this similar language that we saw on the first three days. God said, God called, God saw. So when God speaks, he's speaking creation into existence. When God calls, it means he's naming things. To name something is to have sovereignty over it. When God sees his creation, he steps back, he surveys it, and he always says, this is good. Day six, a little different. This is very good indeed. But every time he surveys his creation, he sees the goodness of his work. We also get this confirmation over and over that what God says actually happens. So the phrase shows up multiple times, and it was so. God said, he speaks the command, and then we get the confirmation, and it was so. We're also given the familiar time stamps that we saw last week. Evening came, then morning the fourth day. The same thing repeated for day five and six as well. There's a new phrase introduced on days four through six of creation, a phrase that is not present in days one through three, and it's the phrase, uh, God created according to their kind. So when God creates birds, crawling things, cow things, he creates according to their kind. That phrase shows up 10 different times. I don't know if you heard it as we read through, but 10 different times uh, on days four through six, God creates according to their kind. It's a very important phrase, and I'll, I'll illustrate why here in just a moment. So we get this new phrase along with all of the other phrases, and, and you know, all the various parts of creation move along with a similar rhythm. Everything reads the same and feels the same. There's a familiarity to it until we get to verse 26 in the creation of humans. The creation of people is different from all the rest of creation. And the difference tells us that people are the crown of God's handiwork in creation. The way we know this for sure from the story is the way the story is told. So there are these uh, linguistic clues, and it's not even a hidden clue, it's just what we see visible in the story that lets us know that when we get to the creation of humans, we've reached the pinnacle of creation, the highlight of God's created uh, acts. So the story tells us this in multiple ways. First, the creation account shows an ascending order of significance uh, of things that are created with human life as the ultimate creative act. It, it's so, this, this blows my mind that planets and stars are mentioned on day four just almost as a byline. And he created the stars. Boom, and we move past. That, that doesn't mean these things are unimportant. It just speaks of their value in relation to the pinnacle of God's creative act in human beings. Also, ten times the phrase according to its kind is used. I told you that. You would expect it to have been used 11 times, and that 11th time would have been when God created people. God created Busby according to his kind, something like that. But instead, we get different language. God doesn't say that he creates humans according to their kind. God says, let us make man in our own image. Also, people are the only part of creation that are made in the image of God. Nothing else is made in the image of God. And finally, the, the creation of humans is given a longer description than the other acts of creation. Everything just kind of rolls by with this familiar rhythm, and then it's, it's as if we come to a stop 
and more and more details flood the narrative as God describes his creation of people. You are the pinnacle of God's creation. Did you know that? You are the pinnacle of God's creation. Panda bears are amazing. The Grand Canyon is stunning. Saturn's rings are spectacular. But you surpass them all. You do. Now, knowing this, there are two primary questions that rise out of this description of days four through six of creation. These questions speak to our purpose. If this is how the story's shaped, if this is where the action goes to where humans are the pinnacle of God's creation, then what, what does that say about our purpose and about who we are? So here's, here's the two questions that we're going to focus on this morning. The first question is this, uh, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And then the second question is, what is the meaning of the blessing and command that God gives to people in verse 28? If we can answer those two questions and get clarity on those things, then we'll have better understanding of our purpose that God has created us for. So let's deal with the first question. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? What's it mean to be made in the image of God? Look at verse 26 with me. Here's where this language shows up in the story. In verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So the first question you're going to ask is this, who is the us? When God says, let us make man in our, who's he talking to in that moment? Can I just tell you that the church has wrestled with this question for as long as there's been a church, and that you can find many, many different answers out there, a lot of different answers. Uh, here's, for, for my take, here's what I think is the most satisfactory answer. Uh, whenever God says, let us make man in our image, what we are witnessing is divine dialogue. This is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in discussion with each other. In light of the total witness of the whole Bible, I see our Trinitarian God in divine dialogue here at this moment. Let us make man in our image. He's not talking to cows and he's not talking to angels. He's talk, the Godhead is speaking within itself. Let us make man in our own image. He says, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. I think it's worth clarifying that image and likeness are not two separate things. It's not as if to be created in God's image it looks like this and then in his likeness looks like this. Rather, this is two ways of saying the same thing. And so then what does it mean to be made in God's image? Well, again, this is a question that God's people have been trying to answer for a very long time. And if you go and do some reading and some research, you'll find that throughout the history of the church, God's people have had different answers to this question. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, early church fathers felt that being made in the image of God meant that, uh, it, was, it meant that we had the ability to reason. Unlike animals, we could reason at a higher level. Later church fathers said that, no, being made in the image of God means living according to God's moral boundaries. We, we have a sense of morality in us that comes from God on high. Our ability to live within these guidelines is what sets us apart as image bearers. More recently, the theologians have thrown out a lot of different options, but one of the more popular uh, takes has been this. Since God is a trinity and God is in perfect, the members of the Trinity are in perfect unity and relationship with each other, 
That means to be made in the image of God means that we also have the ability to be in right relationship with God and with others. So there's this relational dimension to the definition of being made in the image of God. Those things can be right. Those things might be off a bit. There might be other answers that might come in and inform our understanding of what it means to be made in the image of God. However you land on some of these issues, there are two non-negotiables in the doctrine of being made in the image of God. The imago dei, as, they, as it's said in Latin. Two non-negotiables. Here are the things that whatever your answer is, it must contain these two elements. The first is this. Image bearers possess the common grace of God-given dignity, value, and quality. What's it mean to be made in the image of God? It means you have value. It means you have a God-given value. It, it is an equal God-given value to all people. It's not given in part. It's not held out in promise that if you achieve a certain amount, do a certain amount of stuff, that then you'll, you'll, your value will peak one day. It is an inherent value given to all people. So the image of God is not a shallow idea tied to physical appearance or cognitive ability. It's tied to your existence. And since you have life in you, you possess God-given value. All humanity possesses inherent and equal dignity, value, and worth. All humanity means all children, whether in the womb or out of the womb. It means all adults, regardless of age. It means all men and women. It means all ethnicities and people groups. It means all religions, all who are disabled, those who have a great deal of wealth and those who have no wealth. It even means those who are incarcerated. All people, every single human being, possesses God-given dignity, value, and worth. It might be important for you to hear this this morning because you may think too highly of yourself by comparison to others. And so you need to be humbled before this great truth and understand that the people you look down on and the people you disregard are people whom God favors highly. I don't want to be the one that calls the pinnacle of God's creation trash. I don't want to be the one that disagrees with God on this point. So this beautiful doctrine may call you to humility it also may call you to think differently of yourself in another way because I know that so many of us define ourselves by our failures. We define ourselves by our mistakes, our shortcomings, the things we should have done, the good things we haven't done, the good intentions we've never pursued. And so when we look in the mirror, we see failure. We see disappointment. And we think, if I feel that way about me, then surely God must feel that way about me. Here's how God feels about you. He made you in his image. He loves you so much. You are precious to him. And he knows the failures. That doesn't put him off on you in any way. He loves you, and he's proven that love by giving his son to go to the cross on your behalf. You may need to rest in God's valuation of yourself because it's the right valuation. This value and dignity of human life is a common grace given by God to all people. It's not reserved for the redeemed. 
It is true of every person who bears the image of God. And so when the church gets this doctrine right, it has seismic implications. The church is at her best when we work together to make Christ known to fellow image bearers through gospel words and actions. There's an example of this right here in this building in our lower lobby this morning. There's a table set up, and we're collecting baby shower gifts for 12 mothers who have chosen life. And we didn't ask them who they voted for. And we didn't ask them what groups they support or don't support. And we didn't ask what flags fly outside their homes. And we didn't ask them if they love Jesus. And we didn't ask if they were good people. Because none of that has anything to do with their God-given dignity and value. What matters is they are image bearers of God. And it just so happens they're carrying little image barriers in their bellies. And so what a joy and a privilege for us to put together our tiny resources and to bless these women and to bless their children and their families. Because we know they bear the image of God. They possess a God-given value and dignity. Now, not only does being made in the image of God speak to our value, it also speaks to our purpose. So image bearers, the second thing that you've got to get about this doctrine is that image bearers reflect and represent God to the world around us. So we possess a God-given value, but then there's a purpose associated with bearing God's image. That purpose is we reflect and represent God to the world around us. On this point, I find the words of pastor and writer John Piper really helpful. <laughs> Piper made this stunning statement. He said, images are created to image. Well, that's brilliant. <laughs> images are created to image. Here's what that means. If you create a sculpture of someone, you've created their image, and you're going to put that sculpture on display for people to see in a gallery or in the town square. And so when people go by and they see the image of the person it represents, they're meant to think something about that person or their accomplishments. So what would it mean if you created 7 billion statues of yourself and put them all over the world? Well, it would mean that, that you want people to notice you. And so God created us in his image so that we would display or reflect or communicate who he is, how great he is, and what he's like. Now, this is not a common grace given to everyone. This is the God-given purpose of the church, of those who know Christ as their Savior. So if you're a follower of Jesus, then you're to live your life reflecting the love and truth of God to the people in your life. You are not primarily a consumer. You are not primarily a worker. You are not primarily a maker. You are a living reflection of our powerful and loving God. All people are created for this purpose, but not everyone lives for this purpose. But this is God's stated purpose for you who bear his image and who know Christ as your Savior. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? It means you possess God-given value and that you live your life as a reflection of God's love and glory. Your life is showing people and telling people the good news of Jesus Christ. That settles the first question. 
speaks to purpose. But there's a second question that rises from this passage. And the question is this, what's the meaning of the blessing command giving, given to us by God? It's found in verse 28. Now, verse 28 is an amazing verse. Uh, and a few years ago, I heard a pastor named Ligon Duncan preach on this, and his insights on this verse are really helpful for our purposes this morning. Uh, according to verse 28, the first words that humans heard from God was blessing. God blessed them. Adam and Eve were created by God to enjoy his blessing. They have breath and they have his blessing. And that blessing comes in the form of a command. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. And isn't that interesting that the blessing comes in the form of a command. The blessing is a command. Do, do you think of commands as blessings? Probably not. When we think of blessing, what we normally think about is the accumulation of stuff. Oh, I've been blessed. Some good fortune has come your way, some stroke of luck, or you've got more toys than someone else. Oh, I've been blessed. I have things. I've been blessed. That's not what blessing looks like in Genesis 1. Blessing comes in the form of command. Oftentimes, Christians will think about God's commands and obedience to those commands as a way to get God's blessing, as a way to earn his favor and love. And so we might say something like this, God, I'll obey your command so that I can be blessed. But that's not what's happening here in Genesis 1 especially not in verses 27 and 28. Their obedience, Adam and Eve's obedience, our obedience, is not the path to God's blessing. Rather, obedience is the sphere in which we enjoy God's blessing. Obedience is not the path to blessing. It's the sphere in which we enjoy and live in and experience God's blessing and love for us. Now, God's command to them was be fruitful and multiply. What does that have to do with being made in the image of God? Well, remember what God is doing in creation. He's forming and filling the earth. And now he gives this command to Adam and Eve, fill the earth. So they are given a portion of the same work that God has been doing in creation. In other words, God is saying this to them in his blessing. He's saying, be who you are which is to be like me. Be who you are, who I created you to be, and I created you to be like me, to bear my image. So the command is the blessing. We fast forward to chapter 3. We'll get there in just a few weeks. And the serpent will tempt Adam and Eve and tell them that if they eat the fruit, they will be like God. Is that true? No, it's a lie. They're already like God. They already bear his image. But they believe the lie. They disobey. In their disobedience, did Adam and Eve become more like God? No. In their disobedience to God's word, to God's command, they became less like God. They didn't lose the image of God, but the image of God was marred. It's not what it 
was intended to be by God. So when they break from God's command, they step out of his blessing, they mar the image of God in them, they've become less than what God has created them to be. So we've got to get this in our heads and in our hearts that if we're going to walk in the blessing of God, it happens in the sphere of obedience to God's word. God's commands are not a burden. They're not a hardship. They are a blessing to us to keep us from living in ways that are less than God's blessing, ways that are disobedient, ways that continue to mar the image of God in us. So every command he has given is blessing and is good and is for our benefit. Now there are two particular issues that rise from this moment in creation. And they're worth spending just a few moments on together. They're worth spending a lot of moments on together. But we're going to deal with them in short. Two main image-bearing issues that come up at this point in the creation story. The first comes from God's words to Adam and Eve. God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Let's talk about that for a moment. Does that mean that couples who struggle with infertility or single adults are disobeying God? Far from it. You shouldn't read that with any sort of a cringe or any sort of doubt as to your value before God. You see, in light of God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, as well as in light of the cross of Christ, we know that filling the earth is not merely about population increase. It's more so about the spread of God's glory among all people on earth. And as much as I represent and reflect Christ to the people around me, I am filling the earth with God's glory. However, this instruction from God certainly has implications on the way we understand our sexuality. God created our sexuality, and he gave it to humanity to be enjoyed in the context of monogamous heterosexual marriage. And so we reflect and represent God when we live in light of his plan for our sexuality. And when we step out of that, when we step out of God's creative order and plan for our sexuality, we step out of blessing, we step into hardship. Another statement in the story is very important for our cultural moment. God made them male and female. God made Adam and Eve so that their biological sex and their gender were one and the same. And this, of course, has a myriad of implications for where we live, and the people we live around right now. Here is what the Bible says about sexuality and gender. The Bible says that who we are born biologically is who we are in terms of our gender. Gender is not something that, that the Bible teaches us that we settle later or we determine at a later date. It is something that aligns with who God created us to be. We also know this, though. We know that gender dysphoria is a very real and well-documented issue. And it happens for a myriad of reasons in the lives of people who struggle with this. What our world has said is that the way for you to be well and to be out of danger from yourself or from others is to live in line with what your identity is this day. But what God's Word tells us is that 
you're created to be more than just a self-appointed identity. God has given you identity and name and purpose. You bear his image. And so certainly, the doctrine of the image of God in all creation has implications for the way the church responds to those who struggle with gender dysphoria as well as their families. No sin, sexual or otherwise, removes the image of God from a person. And so a follower of Jesus should never dehumanize or attack another person on the basis of sexual immorality, sexual orientation, or gender identity. Rather, we reflect the compassion and mercy of God as we walk alongside these family members and friends on the long and complicated road of healing. Now, this is such a delicate issue, and the reason it's so delicate is because it revolves around the issue of identity. Who defines me? Who says who I am? Well, what we've read this morning is that God defines us since he's our creator and we bear his image. However, when a person answers the identity question without God, they are left with the self. And so then, I will define who I am according to fill in the blank, according to my work, according to my ethnicity, according to my sexuality, according to my gender. So on this issue in particular, when you disagree with a person on the issue of gender identity, you're not just disagreeing with an opinion, but in their eyes, you are denying their very personhood. Which means we have all the more reason to employ humility and compassion as we represent and reflect Christ to these precious people. In your high school, on your college campus, and in your neighborhood, you're surrounded by people who bear the image of God, but they are believing a lie from this world about their identity. Blessing and healing, and hope, and rescue, and salvation, and compassion are found in Jesus Christ. And God has not called the church to win a debate. He's called us to win souls. We do that through long walks to the cross with people. With humility and compassion, we represent Christ to these sweet, precious, hurting people and their families. It's my prayer that God would bring to our church people with all kinds of brokenness, all kinds of brokenness so that they can sit with the word and so that they can learn about Jesus and they can hear the church proclaim how great he is and they can discover the life that he has for them through Jesus Christ and experience the self-sacrificial love of God's people. That's, that's what my prayer is. God, make us that kind of church that people who are really broken whether they're broken and they live in a nice house in this town or they're broken and their life is in shambles in some other way, God, bring the broken people to you through the preaching of your word and the love of your church. But I think what's more likely is that you would invite these friends that you know to your dinner table and you would invest in a friendship that would bear the weight of the truth of the gospel and you would walk with your friend, your loved one, to Jesus. That kind of love is obedience to God's command. And that is the sphere in which you will experience the blessing of God. God has commanded you. Love your neighbor as yourself. In that we find the blessing of God 
and pray that blessing would be multiplied as we reflect the gospel to those who need him. So I, I close with the question I opened with. What is God's purpose for your life? I'll answer it very simply by combining our two answers this morning into one. Genesis 1 teaches us that God's purpose is that you would enjoy his blessing by reflecting and representing him to the world around you. That's God's purpose for your life. God desires to bless you. God is bent towards blessing. He doesn't have to be convinced or persuaded. And he's made it clear how this blessing comes to your life. It's by obedience. So when we obey, we reflect his image and we enjoy his blessings. So now what are you going to do with that? You know what your creator's purpose is for your life. What what are you going to do with it? Reject it. Ignore it. Embrace it. I pray you embrace it. Because how else are we to live but in the way that our creator has made us to live. And so how will you do that? If I've persuaded you this morning to live for the purpose that God's created you for, how will you do that? Uh, through two ways. First of all, you need, to, you need to sit with Jesus. If you're going to reflect the image of God into the lives of others, friend, you've got, you have to look like and sound. People have to recognize Jesus in you. When you step into a room, they see Jesus before they see you. That happens when you sit with Jesus. Here's how you can do that this week. My challenge to you for this week, read a gospel. The whole thing. You pick one. There's four of them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you need the short one, go Mark. If you want a long one, go Luke. But this week, consume one of the Gospels. Sit with Jesus, watch Jesus, listen to Jesus, and let that permeate into your words, into your actions. If you're going to reflect the image of God, it comes by knowing who Jesus is. And so Christian, regardless of how many miles you've got on the odometer, let us sit with Jesus this week that his image might be perfected in us in some degree. And then having sat with Jesus and heard his words and seen his compassion and seen his love and seen his power, then you go live your life. You go to work. You say hey to the neighbors. You do your little league stuff, whatever that is. And in all of those spheres... You reflect the love and the compassion of Christ. You tell people the story again, and you see, you see lives transformed as they see Christ in you. Your likeness to Christ will impact your witness, your evangelism in ways you cannot conceive. And so let your thoughts and your words and your actions reflect him. Not only will you know the blessing of God, but then you will share the blessing of God through the people that you encounter every day. David wrote this in Psalm 119. 119, verse 64, David said, Lord, the earth is filled with your faithful love. Teach me your statutes. Everywhere he looked, he saw the faithful love of God. God, the the world is full of your blessing. It's full of your faithful love. And in response, he wanted to know God's commands. It's Genesis 1, repeated in Psalm 119. So brothers and sisters, may you enjoy the faithful love of God and fill the earth with his glory. And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to talk to you for just a brief moment. You heard me say a little bit ago that 
The image of God is marred in us because of our sin. But there is hope for that image to be restored, for it to be what God intended for it to be. And that hope comes through the actions of God himself. God knew that there's no way you and I, who have marred the image of God in us, that we could fix it on our own. No way. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in your place. Your sin that mars the image of God in you is paid for. It's atoned for by Jesus, who is God in the flesh. He died in your place for your sin, and three days later he rose from the dead and has promised to you that if you believe in him, you're forgiven and you're saved and you're rescued and you're made whole. And, and, and your healing may endure a lifetime. And there might be aspects of your walk with God that, that, that take a long time to get into place. But you'll know that you'll know that you'll know that he's your heavenly father and you're his child and nothing changes that. You'll be living for the purpose for which you were created when Jesus is the Lord of your life. And why Jesus? Why is he such the big deal? Because Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 tells us this. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities or even New Englanders. All things have been created through him and for him. You were created for him. And if you'll say yes to Jesus today, you will know the purpose for which you've been made. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your love to us. Thank you for what we learn about you in Genesis chapter one. In Genesis chapter one, we see the same God that we see everywhere else in the Bible. This is not unique or different or other than who you are. You are consistently the God who is bent towards blessing. Father, thank you for being this kind of God, compassionate, gracious, gracious, merciful, a God of love, a God of blessing. Lord, help us to believe your word, to know that you, the creator, you know what we've been made for. You know how we were meant to live. And so, Lord, let us live as those who bear your image and let us live with abundant compassion and mercy for those around us who also bear your image. But God, help us to reflect you well in humility, in love, in self-sacrifice, just as we've been loved. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.